What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Closing the Loop. Today's guest is Dhruv Bansal, co-founder and CSO at Unchained Capital. Unchained, as it's known, is a Bitcoin-native financial services company, which builds products to help individuals and organizations better custody and hodl their Bitcoin. Crucial to this is their focus on collaborative custody using multisig, which allows them to offer robust key management solutions, transparent Bitcoin collateralized loans, retirement and inheritance planning, and likely much more in the future. They've also built a great open source tool called Caravan, which not only supports their product offering, but makes valuable new ways of managing and using Bitcoin available to everyone. Dhruv is also a highly regarded author in the Bitcoin space, having written an extremely fascinating three-part series called Bitcoin Astronomy, which I couldn't resist spending some time on in this conversation. Enjoy. Dhruv, what's up, man? Great to finally connect with you. Oh, likewise, John. Um, so first of all, I think congrats are in order because ever since the Bitcoin conference in Miami beginning of June, um, Unchained seems to be you know, in the quote-unquote Bitcoin press quite a bit. You guys have had some uh, great raises. And you know, on a personal note, I talked to a, a bunch of people at Bitcoin 2021, as I'm sure you did as well. And it seemed like every other person had just been hired by Unchained. So I guess a lot of that funding is going into uh, you guys hiring. So congrats on that. And uh, maybe for people that aren't familiar with Unchained or you, uh, a brief introduction is in order first before we get going. Uh, thank you, John. No, those are really kind words. And I did feel something like that myself. When I, when I go to conferences now, there's a lot of these blue T-shirts that I'm <laughs> yeah, wearing exactly. everywhere. Um, it's a great feeling as a founder to see your business growing and to see people excited about it and excited to join it. Um, it's very satisfying. Um, but the business has been around for a while. Uh, we actually just celebrated our you know, something like 200-something thousandth block anniversary is the way we put it on Twitter. But our five-year anniversary, I think, was just yesterday. Um, so thank you. No, so it's been, it's been an interesting and long run here. Um, it's, uh, it's fun to think how my own thinking and like the community and, you know, the, the state of the art has evolved in, in that time period. It's a long time in Bitcoin years. Um, but to summarize, you know, Joe, my co-founder and our CEO, and I always, um, like we started the business back in 2016 because we were really just wanting to explore one interesting idea, which is that a lot of Bitcoin just sits around doing nothing. That was sort of the raison d'etre of why we started the business. And we thought, like, that's such a waste. Like, Bitcoin is a $6 billion market cap um, or $10 billion market cap asset back then. And it's a waste that so much of it is just sitting around um, being hobbled by people, um, not being, I don't know, leveraged, insured, uh, collateralized, like all the things we do with wealth of other forms. So that was always... Um, the HODL waves chart, which I'm sure we can talk about if we need to, um, that I think we produced a few years later. We had produced an early version of it, of that chart internally, and it was showing us how much Bitcoin, 60%, was just sitting around. And so we sort of started this business around the idea of bringing better financial products to Bitcoiners who are in this asset long term. They're not just trying to come in and out. Um, they need that sophistication because that solves problems for people with wealth in the real world. Um, uh, I think our overall attitude has always been it's not financial services and banking are that are inherently bad. It's the way that we deliver those services that is not good. And so if we can deliver the value of loans and insurance and inheritance products and all the other great things that people with wealth need, but we can do it in a way that preserves as much as possible their sovereignty, their security, their transparency, their privacy. Um, and that felt like a really valuable thing to bring to Bitcoin. Um, 
So that's kind of where we started in 2016, 17. We launched um, with the, actually the first Bitcoin collateralized lending product. Um, so you can put your Bitcoin into multi-sig cold storage, which at the time was you know far more secure than most people were even doing for their custody. Um, and you could um, borrow dollars against it. And since then, we've grown a lot. Um, we've added vault products, um, buying and selling Bitcoin. Um, we just uh, uh, announced an inheritance product that we're going to be building in collaboration with Jeff Andrew. Um, so we see ourselves reaching that vision of a full suite of banking and financial services for long-term Bitcoiners, um, helping them to truly own their wealth through Bitcoin. Um, and uh, it's been very satisfying, I think, to watch the market kind of come around to us. Because the one comment I'll make is, um, you know, I think speaking transparently, uh, BlockFi, a competitor of ours, um, uh, a company that has a lot of strengths and maybe some weaknesses, uh, if, if, if you follow the Bitcoin Twitter, um, they got started at a very similar time to us, and they've grown um, much quicker than us than we have. Um, and I think that's awesome. They're serving a really you know important market, I'm sure, people coming into Bitcoin for the first time. Um, but they didn't focus on security. They didn't focus on multi-sig. Um, they didn't focus on all the things we focused on. For a long time, we felt that we were crazy. We were like, why are we working so hard to ensure that this stuff matters? Like, why do we, why do we, like, and the answer is always, well, we care about it as individuals. We couldn't imagine using services like BlockFi or others that are custodial. Um, so we wanted to build this thing almost for ourselves. It's been very satisfying as Bitcoin's price has gone up to see the marketplace realize that, oh my God, I really want really good security for my Bitcoin. I want multi-sig. I, when I borrow, I demand to have my collateral held in multi-sig. That's transparent and blocked on the blockchain. It's been good to see the market turn around and like discover us in the last couple of years. Um, and, uh, and, and our growth has been awesome since then. And, yeah. and, and thank you. Thank you for noticing. Um, the, the, the fundraising has been awesome. It's going to help ensure that we continue to grow and, and capitalize on the product market fit that we've achieved. Um, but I'm excited, um, at this point, you know, the things I'm thinking about are not so much, how do we get people to care about multi-sig, which for a long time was what our business we were always talking about. Now it's like, how do I build fast enough to take care of all these customers that are coming in who love and care about multi-sig? So that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, good problem to have. And, you know, it's it's worth noting, I guess, that one of your primary uh, fundraising partners and, uh, I guess, debt partners is, has been Nidig, and they've been doing a lot of That's great right. stuff in the space as well. And, you know, just a, a, a final point on all the people that you've been hiring lately and all the blue T-shirts that, I'm, you know, I'm sure we both saw it at uh, Bitcoin 2021. It's a unique uh, joy and it's actually a joy to witness that joy when you're speaking with someone because everyone wants to work in Bitcoin, right? Everyone wants out of normie world. If you're a hardcore Bitcoiner, you want out of normie land and you want to be contributing mm -hmm. in some way, right? Because you're, you're mm -hmm. on this stuff all day, every day anyways. That's where your mind is. And, you know, you want to work in that capacity. You want to be around those ideas. You want to be around those people. You want to be working towards something that you find of the utmost meaning, right? And it's it's so amazing when... I talked to all these people that I'd only interacted with on Twitter and I asked them how they're doing and what's going on. And they're like, oh, you know, I just joined uh, Unchain. And, you know, there's a huge smile on their face and you can feel the energy. And I think that's twofold, right? I think that's partially because now they're working in Bitcoin and they're just so extremely happy about that. And I think it speaks to Unchained as well, because, you know, you mentioned comparison to another company in the space. And to my mind, it's very obvious when companies emerge in this space, the degree to which the ethos of Bitcoin and the principles of Bitcoin permeate the activities of the company and the people within them and the, you know, their, uh, 
their objectives and their, you know, their motivations and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I think Unchained has established itself as one of those companies that people really want to work for because they, I think they think that there's been a prioritization of the right things, right? And so, you know, mm-hmm. an, an order of events at how you guys have developed. And so I know there's a ton of good people working at Unchained. I mean, I'm, it's staggering that the quality of the team that you guys have, you know, so for kudos for you guys on one, being able to attract those people and two, scooping them up when they were available, because uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty awesome thing to see. No, I, I appreciate that, John. I'll, I'll just make a quick comment on that is uh, I feel uh, Joe and I are lucky in that we you know we've we founded two companies and they've both been uh, by most measures successful. Our last company was a technology company called InfoChimps based here in Austin. Um, we sold it, you know, years, I think in 2013 and it took us, you know, we were sort of got into Bitcoin and sort of that rolled into Unchained. But, um, InfoChimps isn't around anymore. You know, it was bought by a giant technology company called CSE, which was bought by another giant technology company. And then it, it, it classic startup technology acquisition right. story. Um, so a lot of what I built there and what, what the team built there doesn't exist anymore or it exists in small ways. It got absorbed into bigger products, whatever. Um, doesn't feel like there's much impact left for the, the code and the product. Um, if I'm really being honest with myself here, 10 or 15 years later, mm-hmm. but you know, what's still around is the happy hour that all the employees had. Um, like they still get together, even though they work at totally different companies here in Austin, they still get together uh, quite regularly and have an info chimps happy hour. Um, cool. that's an awesome thing. Um, so I'm kind of used to this idea of working at, or frankly, building tech companies with good culture that are great places to work, that people value the relationships and, um, and, and on some level, I kind of view being a great place to work as kind of the minimum bar for the kind of company that I would be willing to work at myself or build. Um, I think what's what what where Unchained exceeds the bar um, beyond and almost any expectation I had, I think, when I was starting it, is the mission focus that we that we all have here. I think, which is I think part of what you're talking about um, at InfoChimps or at many tech companies, there is a mission. You know, um, in InfoChimps, we were always trying to make the world better at data. That was always our goal. As we were a data-oriented technology company, we wanted to increase access and and just make data more powerful in the hands of people. So it's a really cool mission. It's really powerful. And a lot of us believed in it. That's true. But the intensity of belief um, in the Bitcoin mission that we have here at Unchained just exceeds that so much. I mean, um, we uh, many of our employees use Unchained for their own Bitcoin or their family members use Unchained. We um, routinely have stories um, every week or month where we're saving Bitcoin from for one of our clients. They lost a key and Unchained is able to help them recover or they got their email hacked and their 2FA messed up somehow and doesn't matter because the hacker can't take the Bitcoin because they don't have keys because that's not how Unchained works. These are very satisfying experiences, I think, for our staff to, to have. It, it feels cool to be empowering people to truly own their wealth in this way um, and to do it for ourselves. Um, and as a founder, again, it's like that stack of like, not only is it like, it's a great place to work because of culture and where we value our people and, you know, we don't have a strict vacation policy and we're very like individual responsibility focused, but also everyone just really, really is focused on this Bitcoin thing. Um, mm. and that just makes everybody pull in the same direction. And that feels awesome. Yeah, I bet, man. I bet it's, it's, well, and again, this, this is why I sometimes, you know, when I see other companies pop up in the space and they end up going in, in a variety of different directions, different blockchains, coins, this kind of stuff. I'm just like, oh, you had such a great opportunity to just like fill up the boat with just people that are diehard about the mission, about what this thing represents. And, you know, maybe it's still there to some degree, but it's probably been diluted by, you know, being distracted in, in other with other pursuits. 
Um, you, I, I, you, I feel that it's it's a mistake that Unchained made. We we um, driven by market demand and our belief that no matter what our personal opinions, we should be open to what clients and customers are asking us to build. And uh, we we began to support Ethereum in 2017. You can imagine if you go back that many years, how how different the dialogue and discourse was. Uh, frankly, yeah. how. How, how much less I personally even knew or understood Bitcoin. My own belief in it maybe was less than it is today. Um, and so I was much more willing, and we were all much more willing as a company to sort of learn Ethereum. Um, and, and of course, we did it in the unchainedest way possible, right? We didn't just go use Infura and a bunch of other stuff. We ran our own nodes. We developed our own smart contracts um, to do multi-sig storage of Ethereum, for God's sake. Now I think about it so dumb. Um, <laughs> We got them audited. We paid. We had bug bounties. Like we took it really, really, really seriously. We put a huge amount of effort into trying to build a, pro, a quality Ethereum multisig. It didn't suffer from all the terrible, you know, things. If you're familiar with the history of Ethereum multisig and how raucous it's been, um, we modeled the smart contract to work exactly like a P2SH um, smart contract in Bitcoin, if you'd like. Mm-hmm. Um, and we felt it was really, really proud of that work. Um, and like a year passed, it was in market, and like no one cared. Ethereum people. I think preferred to use products like MetaMask and maybe DeFi-like things like MakerDAO and whatnot. Um, uh, it, it slowed us down every time we wanted to push improvements to our product. We had to build them twice: once for Bitcoin, once for Ethereum. And we sort of get and, and and I think the most damning part was we could never really rise past a small percentage, maybe five to ten percent at most of our client base or assets or prod or loans were ever Ethereum-based. So I think at some point we all just sort of realized like. We're going to kill ourselves if we try to uphold the standard of native protocol, high security, multi-sig across multiple chains. We're just mm-hmm. going to turn into a goat rope of of adapters and and constant breaking and having to test and a giant tech team that we have to support. And it doesn't seem like these people even care about the security we offer. So um, why don't we just drop all of that? We'll just focus on Bitcoin. It's what most of us personally care about more. It's what is, you know, I, I personally have been already speculating about crazy Bitcoin space things and all this stuff. Um, clearly, we're all much more excited about Bitcoin. Our Bitcoin customers love our product. Um, can't imagine using a different product. Why don't we just you know, pick the thing that's working and focus in on that? And that's made all the difference. It's allowed our marketing yeah. to concentrate on Bitcoin. It's allowed our product design to embrace more native features and aspects of Bitcoin to make the product uh, a better kind of hand-in-glove fit to the way the blockchain actually works. Um, it was the right call. Um, part of me is like, I, I'm also happy I did Ethereum on some level. I learned a lot about Ethereum. I became a Solidity developer. Um, so a lot of the the um, disappointment and like annoyance I have towards Ethereum software development practices and the way that their nodes work and how unreliable Parity and Geth are and why things become centralized as a result. Like I've directly experienced it. I'm not. I don't feel like I'm repeating Bitcoin maximalist talking points here. I feel right. like I, I'm scarred from having tried to work with Ethereum and tried to tried to work with it as a peer to Bitcoin and realizing it just wasn't. Um, and so I feel very confident, therefore, in, in my stance to really focus in on Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think that was a great, uh, probably a great learning experience and ultimately a great decision. But it, you know, it is an expensive learning experience. <laughs> <laughs> As many are, as many are, you know, it, it, it is, and I know there's, there's passionate people on all sorts of projects, but, you know, as you said in 2017, maybe just the appreciation for what Bitcoin is, was less than it is today, which is rational, right? Because as we all fall down this rabbit hole, it seems like it just, it's never ending, right? So you, you wake up from one day to the next and you're like still having these epiphanies about what this thing is and the implications of what it represents. 
And, you know, I, I explore this a lot uh, in the conversations I have around Bitcoin. And I think we can only rationalize it a very fraction of it. Like we're kind of swept up in this wave and we're all just trying to integrate and internalize and figure this out. But I do think back to the, you know, the passion with which people join your company and attempt to work in the space, it is largely from that. It's like much of it is unarticulatable, but there's this sense that like, this is the important thing to be working on. Like this is our generation's moonshot. This is our generation's really, really big, important project. And if you can be a company that allows people to exercise and express mm -hmm. that passion through the work they do, then, you know, creating a company culture is probably far easier than it is in other domains where you really have to be methodical about it, not to diminish at all what you guys have created. But you know what I mean? When the mission and the why is so obviously uh, big and, 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 and commonly held by the people that want to work with your company, then, you know, it's, it's just a matter of making sure that you, you build kick-ass products and you do it with the utmost integrity. And I think a lot of the, the rest of it takes care of itself. It, it does. I like the way that you put that, like our moonshot or our generation's big thing that we got to work on it. it, it um, perhaps every entrepreneur wants to, wants to believe that, right? They want to believe that about their own business and stuff. But I, I really do believe that here. I think, you know, the, the passion that, that folks join with and our, our clients have and that our partners have is, is manifest. Um, but I also think there's something, um, the, the, the generational aspect I think is, uh, is something I'm, I'm seeing as well a lot too. Um, conjecturally, let's let's push forward some trends. You know, like we see Bitcoin continuing to grow. Um, Austin, in particular, where Unchained is headquartered, continues to grow just as a you know powerful and and popular and, and U.S. city, but also just as a center of Bitcoin uh, culture. Um, a lot of Bitcoiners here. Bitcoin companies like Austin, um, favorable legislation, um, all these kinds of things. Uh, there's a lot of wealthy Bitcoiners moving to Austin for you know a multitude of reasons. But um, when you get this concentration of of wealth um, and new companies um, that are growing quickly, that are becoming important perhaps in the infrastructure of Bitcoin, all in one location, um, and then multiply Bitcoin's actual price by ten and then twenty and hundred over the next twenty, thirty, however many years you want to track this trend forward, um, you, I think you start to see like. Uh, waves coming out of something like that right like it, it uh, there, bitcoin is venice right this theme of um of uh of local populations of highly focused people with the same mission that are all kind of mingling and having that coffee shop venice kind of experience which is starting to happen now here in austin greatly uh for, for me certainly as a bitcoin it often happens at the unchained offices to, to be quite frank um you know, what are all these Bitcoiners going to do with their wealth in 20 or 30 years? What are big companies like Unchain going to do if we continue to grow and become giant players? Um, we're going to invest in things. We're going to build other things. Like there's Bitcoin's revolution doesn't end as Bitcoin becomes an ascendant money. Like it continues to kind of wash over so much more of culture and society and other sectors of the economy as well. Um, and I think the kinds of phenomenon that you see where like Great, I think great examples are, are, are you know, the Silicon Valley, right? Like the, going from Shockley Semiconductor all the way through Intel to like early computer companies to the huge amounts of wealth that gets created, which then brings the culture of investment, which then goes out and leads to VCs and LPs, which power like the creation of the internet and and many of the great wonders and ills that we all suffer from today. So I think you you I see something like that even happening um, as a result of Bitcoin. And, and, and Austin isn't the only place, but it's one of the places. And I think Unchained's part of that story. So it's, it's again, really satisfying and exciting to um, speculate about these kinds of good outcomes. 
Sure. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. I, I haven't been to Austin yet, but it seems like a lot of people are descending upon it and relocating and getting stuck in. And I mm-hmm. hear rumblings that there may even be a aspirational uh, or an endeavor to put a, a Bitcoiner in the mayor's office in, in Austin in the not too distant future. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I think I think Parker is responsible for like eighty percent of the Bitcoiners that come to Austin. So, um, yeah, that's, that's what so, I hear. So he's just bringing in his voters. I think that's that's it could happen, man. It's exciting, <laughs> tricky, tricky. Um, but you know, it, it is interesting. People talk a lot about the uh, the PayPal mafia, right, and how much of an impact they had in in fostering web and, and, and internet companies as a result of that. And that was what like 10, 12 people, something quite small, and. And here we have this global network of people that are, you know, Bitcoiners are, of course, there's an aspect of being in it for the financial gain, right? You want to inc- mm-hmm. improve and increase your financial security and open up the optionality you have available to your life. But there is a very deep and in, in many cases, possibly, you know, uh, you know, more important ideological aspect to all this. And the fact that that group of people, as you say, how well capitalized are going to be when Bitcoin 10x is from here, when it 100x is from here, the ability for them to uh, build companies and express that ideology through those companies out into the world is going to be tremendous. I mean, again, like the PayPal mafia was 10 people. We're talking about tens of thousands of people with a significant amount of capital being able to do things. And because and, ultimately, I mean, this is basically about freeing capital and freeing people. Right, so that it can go forth and and do its thing and and meet the needs of of free thinking, voluntarily acting individuals around the world. And the fact that capital is now going to become unsiloed from all its various systems and networks and currencies all over the world, and it's going to be just one free flowing network of capital that anybody can access without discrimination. I mean, it's really it's 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 tough to wrap your head around what the implications of that can be. You know, I think we can we in our speculations we see a few feet in front of our noses, mm-hmm. but projecting anything more than a few years out, I think, is fun, but ultimately difficult to be accurate in that game. I, I like the way that you put that. The, the networks of capital, right? To me, that's really the key phrase. Is is I think Bitcoin is a rearranger of human networks. In meaningful ways, because it's a it's a tool to build really robust distributed markets, and markets are different forms of decision making and resource allocation than centralized control or management. And a lot of human networks that we rely upon are centrally managed today, and they're a certain amount of efficient. And this includes, you know, financial networks, transportation networks, communication networks. Um, they they're part organic and they're part distributed, but they're in large part centrally managed just because of the way that humans organize themselves into hierarchies and companies and governments and institutions. Bitcoin gives us new tools for how we can organize ourselves through local incentives that globally build structures that kind of hang together. And I think we're going to start by changing and deprogramming and restructuring networks of financial uh, um, transactions and interactions, because that's where that's the closest thing to Bitcoin since Bitcoin is money. But, you know, adjacent areas like energy and um, other sectors of the economy will follow on from that. And other networks will get reshaped because of the incentive structures that Bitcoin brings to bear. Hopefully yeah. for the uh, I think there's going to be a lot of chaos in this. Um, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm trying not to go into it with, with the sepia tone glasses on or anything like it's right. going to be chaotic. There's, there's going to be losers. Um, mm. There's going to be hurt. But I think the outcome is something healthier and more heterogeneous in the long term. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm inclined to agree. I remain hopeful 
you know, disruption is always disruptive, right? There's uh, someone who's, who's, comfortable position is being taken away from them. And sometimes they'll fight tooth and nail to maintain it. Other times they may capitulate, you know, but it, it's quite possible the transition could be messy. But, you know, we were talking about before we started recording how this podcast is placing an emphasis on uh, streaming payments and using the Lightning Network to do so. I mean, it, it again, kind of to the mind blowing uh, aspect of all this. I mean, right now, the movement of capital is so especially across networks and across jurisdictions is, is so lethargic is, is so st sticky. You know, if you want to send 40 bucks to someone in Zimbabwe, Russia, China, you know, you may be looking at a bank transfer that takes a few days and you may be the currency conversion, you're losing a, a spread on that and everyone's taking their cut and all this kind of stuff. So the, the efficiency of the movement of capital in hindsight, I think we're going to look back almost in horror and be like, wow, I can't believe it was ever so efficient. Because on the flip side, what Bitcoin allows is for instant, I mean, instantaneous movement of capital without cost or friction, you know, to the point that you could actually use it in something as seemingly so insignificant as listening to a podcast. Like, why would I stream money when I'm listening to a podcast? And right now, the answer might be, well, I want to support the innovation that's happening in this area because I can see down the line. The importance of having an ad-free model or a censorship-resistant publication method or, or something like that. But it seems frivolous right now. But just the fact that you can do it and the fact that people are doing it almost speaks to, you know, how, uh, well, that it's such a low priority thing right now, but it's happening just speaks to what happens when you free up capital, when you make when you make the movement of capital so much less, so much more frictionless, what ends up happening? Well, it finds its way into so many different areas and you're, you're able to, a market is able to emerge around so many more things because the cost of transacting is so much, so much uh, lower and the speed is so much higher that now you, you bring markets to the world as a result of that efficiency. And I mean, you know, I get goosebumps when I talk about it because it's so, it's so exciting. No, I think that's that that's an incredibly like important insight that I think you've articulated there is it, it, it is a combination of, of maybe three things. Like one is is I think what you said is the the speed of transactions, the um, the low cost of transactions, and I would add the third, like the customizability slash programmability slash lack of trust in those transactions. Um, when you can have all those things together, yeah, you're able to push markets upward into all sorts of areas, like up from Bitcoin. And I think crucially, it's not really Bitcoin like on its own in an isolated way that provides all those things. Right? It's Bitcoin plus all these things we wrap around it, like Lightning, and then um, you know things on top of Lightning to regulate our channels, and things on top of those things to allow ourselves to communicate. And, um, I, I think it's the Kevin Kelly quote, which I think best summarizes it, right? Like, the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. And so... Um, on some level, we can see really far into the future if we're go if we're willing to like winnow our gaze onto like people that are doing the most futuristic shit, which probably includes some listeners of this podcast right now. Um, and just as you say, the fact that because of the Lightning Network, we can make payments so much easier, faster, cheaper, more programmable, means that we can now um, have a business model where podcasts are more easy to pay for directly. That's a different consumption model entirely. It leads to different content that can be out there. Um, it does make it harder to censor, which I think is powerful. Um, but more of it just changes incentives. Um, people aren't trying to get to the algorithm. Um, they're trying to get to the audience, which I think is, um, which is awesome. 
Um, and then you can easily imagine how it goes from here. I, even Paul, one of your prior guests on a couple um, episodes ago, um, is taking the same thing and then saying, okay, great, now let's just communicate generally um, and chat with each other like over these payment networks, right? So you're kind of seeing this adjacent possible of like Bitcoin is adjacent, like as a store of value and as a kind of base level truth is sort of adjacent to the idea of payment settlement networks that are ad hoc and peer-to-peer, which is kind of then adjacent to the idea of building third-layer services, which use peer-to-peer payment networks. Um, it's it's going to be really amazing to try to coordinate all of these layers and economic activities and see how they structure out over over the coming decades. Um, and, it is, and it is decades, right? It's not going to be like, I think, another thing that just frustrates me about like the, the, the Ethereum and altcoin sort of approach is like this insistence that like, we can build those things now, which I think is just, it's, it's a misinterpretation and a misestimation and, and to the point where it's a, either a farce or a scam. You know, like we can't build those things now. It's going to take so long to figure all that stuff out. Mm-hmm. Well, this, this was always the, the, the tension, I guess, between Bitcoin and other, other protocols. It's, you know, when other protocols were preaching fast or cheap transactions, you know, it, basically it was just displaying that their order of events order of events was was wrong right like you you need to establish that immutable incorruptible base layer as a as the first step and then over the course of time with patience you build on the, the other layers not to mention that you know like nobody's really complaining about paying for their coffee that's not a massive problem in the world today but central bank and government control of, of currency and the siloing of various currencies all around the world mm-hmm. and the manipulation and the, the disenfranchisement that happens as a result, well, that's kind of a big problem. Maybe that's, that should be the first step. And I think what's happening now and, you know, the, the recent news with Twitter integrating lightning tips and the work that everyone in the lightning space is doing really is going to serve to shake up those narratives. Because, you know, I talk to a lot of people that still think Bitcoin is slow and expensive, you know, to use as a currency. And, and now that they realize that not only is it, I mean, again, with the podcasting example, it's so cheap and, 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 and quick, you can actually stream payments and it's economically viable to do so. And once that narrative starts to permeate, I think people really recognize that Bitcoin did in fact have the order of operations correct and that the possibilities are going to start to bubble up in people's minds when they think about, wow, like what can happen from here? You know, and as you say, all these different adjacent, you know, networks and solutions and stuff and even even the mining thing. And, you know, this is kind of along the lines of your your really interesting writing on Bitcoin and astronomy. And for anyone listening, I, I highly recommend checking out Drew's, uh, I think, three part series right on on Bitcoin and astronomy. That's right. Which we can which we can we can or we or, or we cannot get into is totally up to you. But just to say that who would have thought when you know, this new peer-to-peer cash emerged on the world and everyone was excited because it was, you know, separating money and state and what have you, that it also seems like it's going to have an enormous, unprecedented ev- uh, effect on energy production, energy energy harnessing, energy distribution. Mm-hmm. Basically, our civilization's relationship to energy itself is going to be dramatically changed by this peer-to-peer money. You know, so that's just another example of how it's not, you know, I, I, I guess don't be too narrowly focused on what Bitcoin, quote unquote, is, because it's probably going to end up being a lot more than that. Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly. And, and that's why I like to frame it at, 
for myself, at least at the highest levels, like it's a, it's a money that allows us to program networks in ways that we've never been able to before. And, uh, in this case, we're talking about energy networks and the programming is go out and get as much energy as possible because you'll always be able to sell energy in the world. Now that was never true previously. It doesn't matter where the energy is. You can always sell it and make bitcoins with it. Um, uh, that's an incredibly cool thing to, to be true. Um, and, and yeah, as you mentioned it, like that's ultimately, uh, playing with that thought is I think what drove me to write a lot of that uh, series in Bitcoin astronomy is just, well, let's, what happens, let's project this a million years forward. What does a species looks like who's been incentivized to go out and collect energy continuously for a million years? Um, uh, that's not quite our prior, our history. Like hu- humanity like has grown in our energy uses tremendously over time um, by many orders of magnitude. Uh, but we've always that growth has always been limited to where civilization happens to be, right? We only go out and harvest energy like near where we live. Um, we ignore most of the energy that's otherwise available. So now we have this giant um, engine that will accept this energy, and it'll make the money more secure. Um, and I think that will, you know, reprogram the network of energy production and distribution um, for the better. Uh, it's going to spread us out. Maybe maybe we will ourselves spread out as a species a bit more, and 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 reverse some of the trends of urbanization, which I think are a little bit unhealthy um, globally. Um, it's, it's harder. Uh, that's a kind of a separate issue. But I, I just think that these are, maybe to your point, unpredictable in many ways, like these trends. They're, they're different and they're new. And I, and I like the idea that there are these new countervailing balances to kind of balance against some of the other um, incentives that we already have as a species. But it's, it is really hard to predict where this goes. Um, the hope, I think, that we all have is that it leads towards a more distributed, more equitable, more just world. Um, but I think we all have a part to play in that, right? We don't We don't get that if we um, abandon some of the principles of Bitcoin and allow it to become centralized or allow it to be held by mostly third-party custodians, or if we don't innovate and build additional layers to extend Bitcoin's reach um, to projects like even you know streaming payments and other things like I think that's why there is such a burden um, that a lot of Bitcoiners feel to give back, so to speak. It's, it's. I think cynically, you can be interpreted as I'm just trying to, you know, enrich my bags. But um, I think, I think that's 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 even too cynical for me. I think truthfully, um, there's a lot of Bitcoiners who, if they wanted to, could just sell their bag right now and and be retired, and that's that's the furthest thing from their mind, right? They're excited about um, taking their newfound. Um, freedoms and uh, trying to build and support this community and this asset class and, and, and so on. Um, well, that's, that's how I feel. Go, go ahead. I was just going to say, that's why Bitcoin's aligned incentives are so powerful because you do well by doing good. You, yeah, you are pumping your bags, but what you're doing is you're, you're strengthening or expanding the utility in some way of this network. And, you know, there's nothing to be ashamed of when uh, when incentives align like that, because that's how you promote cooperation. That's how you disincentivize conflict. That's how you mm-hmm. you generate innovation and prosperity with aligned incentives. And so it's, uh, you know, the, the fact that it ticks all those boxes is is, is great and not, nothing to, to shy away from. Everyone wants to do well, but if you can do good simultaneously and if you can do some of the best good simultaneously, then man, you know, set it, set it on fire and go for it because what else are you going to do with your time? <laughs> you know, I think one of the things that you mentioned in the, uh, in the series, and it's, it's the only note I, I, I wrote down, uh, from the astronomy series, but I think, you know, for people just to tickle people's interest, if they want to pursue it further, you say, 
A blockchain is a thermodynamic, thermodynamically signed cryptographic proof of a civilization's position on the Kardashev scale. And uh, <laughs> I thought that was a real interesting way to, uh, you know, because in the, in the piece, you, 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 you do look at civilizations and their advanced state of advancement through the lens of, you know, are they using a blockchain? And if so, what kind? You know, and I think uh, that's very new thinking, but you lay out a very rational case for why that could potentially be, uh, you know, the manner in which we assess or are assessed by our interstellar neighbors, ultimately. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wild, like, sort of utilitarian angle or something on it. Um, but to me, it all, also comes from the way that, like, I, you think as a Bitcoiner about verification. It's like the thing that I love most about Bitcoin on some level is that, um, you can't fake the blockchain. It's just, you just can't fake it. Um, like it, it just, it, in the data, it says like this block has this difficulty and here's the data of the block and here's the winning nonce and here's what it hashes to. And you can't, as far as we know, mathematically, we don't have a proof of this because we don't know if P is not equal NP and all this stuff. But as far as we know, it's like technologically and perhaps even mathematically impossible to efficiently solve these problems. Yet here we have a complete history of some, 600 700,000 instances of this problem being solved at, at exponentially greater and greater difficulties that entire time um i couldn't fake that if i tried i would need so much energy and so much computing i would i would need to run the world to do that um that's just such a fucking powerful um built-in self-validation in, in the bitcoin blockchain it's incredible um and that's what really started to lead me to like you know in theory, an, an alien species that understood Bitcoin could look at it and be like, oh, okay, so you have approximately this much energy available for Bitcoin mining. So I might conjecture that you have, you know, 10 to 100 to 1,000 times that available, you know, overall in your civilization. And then I was like, wait, we could do that to them too if we had their Bitcoin or, or whatever you like. And so I think that's where that thinking kind of cuts off from is just Bitcoin, like the energy usage in Bitcoin is baked into its security. It says it right on the tin and you can just read it off. And that somehow says something about your entire civilization. Um, right. That's powerful, I think. Very. I mean, there's a there's a very kind of clear analogy to like pyramid building, for example, because in, mm -hmm. in this scenario that you paint, you look at another civilization's blockchain, you go, ah, like, whoa, yes. whoa, look how much work went into their blockchain. Mm -hmm. Look how much, you know, mm -hmm. energy they're able to harness in order to do all that work. Like, wow, mm -hmm. they must be extremely advanced. And that's kind of what, you know, the Egyptian pyramids are. It's like, wow, look at the work that they were able to do. Look how much energy they were able to harness and bring to bear to construct something of uniform and, and highly ordered uh, structure. You know, so it's, yeah, it's like, kind of like they, they must have been a great civilization. Like you sort of like that's yeah. your conclusion from it, exactly. right? And I, and I think yeah. I, I like your. I should have used the pyramids. Thing. That was that's good. But I, think <laughs> I like it even more because it's like uh, I'm not an Egyptologist, obviously, but but like the pyramids, there are many of them, and they span a huge number of thousands of years. It's it's not just like they happened, you know, one century. There's a lot of them over a long period of time, and and that itself is kind of like part of the story of the civilization of Egypt is is understanding how they're different and what changed over time. And I think that's also cool because that's in the blockchain, right? That's like the hodl waves and other kinds of historical analyses of this data. Like they tell you something about what was happening in the real human world as you watch the UTXO set change. And I think that is compelling that you can see the economic history of the users of this system built into the record that the system keeps of itself. 
Um, so I like that. And this is, of course, all not possible if you use proof of stake, right? Because I can just manufacture for you a giant proof of stake blockchain, at least if it's 100% proof of stake and doesn't use these sort of weird anchoring the proof of work ideas that are sort of floating around in ETHLAND right now. But um, th that's a, a it's, it's completely useless and not, and not practical to think about alien civilizations or anything in this context. It shouldn't be how a person decides Bitcoin versus Ethereum, honestly. But for me, it's, it's, um, it's honestly like a fun consequence of having come to that conclusion is it helps me feel more secure about the reasons why I ultimately rejected proof of stake on earth as a Bitcoin, as a cryptocurrency user for lack of verifiability and all my other concerns with manipulation. Like these are the reasons why it would never be, you know, at this crazy speculative future stage of civilizations not used. Um, I, I like that line of reasoning. Um, like the same decision that I made as an individual applies for civilizations long over a long periods of time. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, on a philosophical level, the, the, the deeper or the more profound the truth, the more broadly applicable it is across even scale. And so in that, in that case, if we're going to look at Bitcoin as a, as a type of truth, then its applicability across scales and, you know, it's it, how valid its structure is, let's say, I think speaks to how profound of a truth it may be. And if your assertion there is correct, and I think broadly speaking, you could say, well, you can't really fake work. So, uh, you know, the fact that that is the, the underlying foundation is, uh, you know, again, it just kind of speaks to the why and how it may be a profound truth and why we may ultimately see it in, you know, the civilizations we encounter or that encounter us, you know, down the road. It's a, it's a, it's a extremely fascinating and, and you know, uh, area of inquiry. And one of those things that us hardcore Bitcoiners love to just blow our minds on every now and then and, you know, go down that different rabbit holes around that kind of stuff. Um, but I do want to, you know, because we could, we could talk about that kind of stuff for hours, I'm sure. <laughs> but how, you know, my question when we're talking about this is thinking, how do you bring yourself back down to where we are now and prioritize what to do? And th this actually may, we kind of skipped over your own personal background, but this may actually tie into your background because you're kind of a hardcore science background. And then you got interested in, in Bitcoin and you met Joe and you had the former company together and you, you decided you wanted to go into Bitcoin. One, was it weird for you to go from hardcore science to ostensibly finance, even, even though it was a more techie sort of finance than had previously come before? And two, how do you rein in these fantastical thoughts about <laughs> how Bitcoin is going to change everything and bring it back down to, you know, where we are today and finding product market fit with the services that, you know, are relevant for now? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, so I think there's a, there's a, a missing chapter there, there that, <laughs> that, that, that there's a missing chapter in there maybe that should get articulated, which is, I think I was, I was, a uh, originally I came to Austin to get a PhD in physics and I worked at the university here, uh, Texas. Um, and I worked in statistical mechanics, um, sort of the, the study of large systems and the, the patterns that we can find inside them and, and so on. And in particular, um, I worked on applying those kinds of physics-based ideas to real-world data sets. So I analyzed like large populations of students in one project or um, uh brain signals in, in, in a human brain in another project and sort of tried to apply physics like thinking to to what are ultimately systems of many small particles or particles you know or actors or entities right um so it was an interesting kind of like multidisciplinary sort of background and moreover it led me to a lot of programming against large data sets that i had to manipulate in order to be able to do this stuff so i started getting um 
just better at the technology around working with large, huge, at the time, you know, gigabytes and, and terabytes of data. Um, and that led to actually a company. So I met Joe way before Bitcoin. Uh, uh, I think I met Joe probably right around when Bitcoin was started, actually. Ironically, I sometimes think back to this. We started our company in about 2008 or nine. So right as Bitcoin was getting started, we did not know about Bitcoin at the time. Um, so we built this technology company to work with large data sets. That was InfoChimps. I alluded to that earlier. Um, so that company was crucial for me to understand and appreciate Bitcoin because in that business, the, the way that we deal with large amounts of data at that time was uh, a movement called NoSQL. Uh, so just like there's a traditional kind of database called a SQL or SQL uh, database, Oracle, Postgres, my, a lot of the, the most of the world still runs on these very dependable, tradi- traditional, if you'd like, very capable, very correct databases. Um, but there was a challenge in, in scaling applications up to the Google and Facebook kind of scales. Like, uh, you can't just put everything into one database. You need to build a database which lives across many hundreds, many thousands of machines. So this is starting to maybe ring bells for people that think about Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is a database that runs across, you know, all the tens of or hundreds of thousands of nodes that comprise the Bitcoin peer-to-peer network. Um, uh, so in working at InfoChimps and solving problems in big data for other large companies, that's ultimately what the business of InfoChimps became, is building large data applications and infrastructure stacks for insurers and manufacturers and whatnot. So in building these systems, I would use NoSQL databases, Elasticsearch, HBase, um, Hadoop, if you like, but that's not quite a database. Um, and so I just learned a lot about the challenges of distributed systems. Uh, moreover, I learned that the the fundamental problem on, on some level in, in distributed systems is, is time. It's syncing of things. It's like when things change, if we don't know the order in which things changed exactly, we can't decide which change to honor versus which one not to honor. And there's no one in charge of this distributed system because it's just a bunch of nodes all trying to peer-to-peer together to solve the problem. So actually, one of the core challenges in building those kinds of databases is having a global sense of time. And there's all sorts of clever, clever ways to do it and, and not clever ways. Like one way to do it is just force every node to use uh, NTP or network time protocol and just sort of hope that that works out. But that never works out because computers aren't perfect timekeepers at their core levels, especially virtual computers. There's clock drift. There's a host of giant problems that occur and various methodologies that people have come up with to try to get around these problems. Um, A lot of the methodology looks like um, don't delete things, just write things in addition, append-only logs or write-ahead logs are, are common structures in the distributed systems world for how to solve this problem. Um, and then I heard about Bitcoin. Um, so I'm in the middle of this business, like building all this stuff out. I'm at a conference. I met a guy in 2011 who was like super knowledgeable about Bitcoin. Um, he was wearing a kilt. It was I'll never forget it. Um, I don't know why, but he was just wearing a kilt at a conference in Portland somewhere. Uh, it was fun. So we just hung out all day, and he talked a lot about Bitcoin. And it was cool because I had, with this whole distributed system stuff, I had enough background knowledge where I could it more or less immediately understand, quote-unquote, how Bitcoin worked, like the, um, the blockchain structure, and like all, I, I could see how it might work in theory. But I thought in practice it was just not going to work because I was like, who wants this? This is a stupid thing. Like, oh, too complicated, uh, not solving any real problems. Like, cool that you figure this out, but like, it doesn't matter. Also, the price of Bitcoin is like less than a dollar, right? So it, it doesn't have an, it doesn't have any impact on you, right? And of course, I wish I had a blah, 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 but whatever. I think if you didn't dismiss, if you didn't dismiss Bitcoin, probably the first time you heard about it, it I don't know, I mean, you're too, probably too gullible. Um, so I ignored it. Uh, and then 
sold Joe and I ultimately sold InfoChimps a few years later. Um, you know, I made a little bit of money, like thinking about I randomly hear about Bitcoin, it's like two hundred dollars now. And I'm like, how did that happen? It's only been like two years. There's no way um this esoteric thing could like have been come so much more valuable. And then I was like, unless it's actually starting to work. And then I was like, oh God, if it actually starts to work, it might it, it might actually work. And then I was like, I need to totally reevaluate this thing. And so then wound up buying some, getting more interested in it long term. So coming back to your question, um, for me, it wasn't so much going from science directly to Unchained. It was this interlude of, you know, four or five years, um, actually six or seven years probably total, building this te- um, big data-oriented tech company that, that helped me really understand distributed systems really well. And that is, I'm so glad for that because it gave me um, like sort of physics plus distributed systems plus programming gave me a great foundation to appreciate Bitcoin. Um, I did not understand any of the monetary aspects. Um, for me, one of the most like mind-enlarging parts of my work recently or on Unchained has been to learn more about how money actually works. To I was one of those people who like thought the Fed was part of the government because and it's called the Fed. Right? I, just, I wasn't curious about that aspect of the world really in any way. Um, like I think a lot of people that come from science and engineering where um, we're more excited about machines and systems. We don't think about money and the way that it has a machine behind it. Um, and that machine is actually interesting and, and fucked up. And I'm glad now that I know more about it and I'd like to replace it. Um, so that's been a fun experience for me with, with Bitcoin. So I would say um, that the challenge has been not so much learning how to be an entrepreneur or like getting into that. It's been uh, learning more about money. Um, there's also a lesson for Joe and I, like InfoChips, uh, was a successful outcome for all of us uh, as investors and entrepreneurs and as employees, but we had a major pivot in the history of the company. We thought for a number of years when we first started that we were going to provide some kind of an online marketplace for data, and then that didn't really work, uh, or we weren't able to make it work. Um, and instead, we pivoted, and we decided to build this you know, enterprise technology company. Um, and that was much more successful. But what, I, what Joe and I learned in that whole experience was, don't build something because it's cool, because you think it's cool. Uh, build something that people will buy, um, because you can't build a real business off of shit that engineers and technologists think is cool. It has to be something that people that solves a real pain point for people, like pain. Like they have pain, and then they pay you to take away the pain because your product is so good. Um, it has to be that. And so I think that experience taught us that um, when we started Unchained, we were we were so like focused on where's the pain? Like what is the pain point that we're going to solve for Bitcoiners or for people in general? And as I said earlier, the, what we decided to focus on was, hey, I have all this Bitcoin and I'm not using it for anything and it's causing me pain, either because I want to protect it better or I want to collateralize it or I want something else to do with all this Bitcoin that I have. That was the pain we decided to um, try and solve. And I'm glad that we did because following that pain led us to solve other pains like security through our multi-sig vault product um, and a bunch of other stuff that we'll be releasing in our building. Um, so for me, I actually have a really like hardened sense of like, um, don't work on shit that people don't pay you for if you're building a business. Like if you're a researcher, if you're an academic, if you're a thinker, a thought leader, like shit poster, do whatever you want, you know? Um, so at, at some level, I try to divorce a little bit um, strange articles I might write about Bitcoin in space from what I'm doing during the day, which is a lot more focused on writing code, reviewing PRs, designing systems, you know, building out the company, uh, trying to service the, our clients and partners. Um, but with that said, on some level, like, 
I could be working at any company, building any technology, like writing code for anything. I'm choosing to write code here. I'm choosing to build this company. And part of the reason for that is the crazy speculative stuff. Um, and so there is a connection. And I think that's true for everybody in Bitcoin. That, um, And maybe not everybody's excited about Bitcoin in space. That's fine. But like, there's this other really important thing that you're excited, like, like financial freedom, like self-sovereignty. Um, I, uh, I don't like government largesse. There's um, or, or the Human Rights Foundation, right? Like money as a vehicle towards reaching better human rights for all. Like there's something beyond just, oh, I like Bitcoin for digital gold and blah. There's something that you th- hope that that will get the world. Um, and that's really important to a lot of Bitcoiners. And so I think it, it doesn't have to be space or, or any particular thing. There, there's always something behind Bitcoin that we think is the reason why Bitcoin is so powerful and amazing and transformative. And so it's important to not just pay lip service to those ideas, but to articulate those ideas in the best possible way. Because I think it brings in new audiences. Um, you know, like Parker's writing has been so amazing because it brings in all these audiences that, you know, they're not here for the space things. They're here because he's writing about problems that they recognize and they see how Bitcoin can fix those problems. So um, something that I think the Ethereum community does really effectively is they offer a narrative for a giant group of people, which is technologists and tech investors um, who have a lot of money and have a lot of skills and talent and brain power that we need. And they tell them a narrative that's really powerful for them, which is, we're going to rebuild the internet. We're going to change how that works. And that's more important than money or energy or human rights or anything else. It's And I think part of the reason that that narrative resonates so strongly with those audiences is they know the internet's fucked up because they fucked it up. They built all these centralized systems. They built all these centralized systems and they have the world's data and they do select star off of everybody's private information and sell us shit we don't need. Like they know that that's fucked up. And so hearing that like, we're going to fix that. Oh, and by the way, you can buy a piece of the fix right now is, is a very exciting proposition to that side of the world. Um, and I'm from that side of the world, right? Like Ethereum did appeal to me when I first heard about it because I was excited about solving those kinds of problems. I remain excited about solving those problems, except now I have a more nuanced view. I see us solving them in Bitcoin through building all these layers. And I think that's a long-term, more robust and sustainable solution. And I'm on board with that. Um, but that's because I've spent bloody you know seven years thinking about Bitcoin now. Um, for people who are just coming into it, like they they work somewhere else and they're getting excited about crypto and like there's a giant constituency for whom this narrative is the important one. Um, so I don't know, coming back to the overall question, I think things that inspire you are important because they anchor you in your work. They, they help you push through the hard periods. They, they give you something to do on, when you, when you're burned out and you can't write code that day, but you, but you, but you feel like expressing this, this thing that's been bothering you. Like these are important things to allow and encourage I think at any company um, in the Bitcoin space, um, but at the same time, we can't build shit that um, people don't need yet, and that they're not willing to. Like, I don't want to build stuff that is cool and doesn't solve anybody's real pain because it's not sustainable. It's not a real product. It's not a real business any longer. Um, I think what's interesting is there's definitely a boundary line between there that isn't clear. Like, if you're working on Sphinx, like Paul, one of your prior guests, are you solving pain or are you just doing something cool? Like. I think it's it's right on the boundary right there, right? And I think Paul probably knows that, is that, like, it's about to be solving a lot of pain for people hopefully soon, and he's going to be ahead of it all, and Sphinx is going to be an amazing protocol, and it's, and it's a great team. And, um, 
that's an interesting kind of discussion for me, right? Is what's at that boundary of just about to become something that we should be working on because it's going to be solving pain. And, and you know, as far as Unchained is concerned, we've been really focused on layer one and multi-sig, but increasingly we see Lightning as something we have to start participating in. Um, it's growing so, so quickly and it's solving real problems for people. And there's real problems we could solve for our own clients and ourselves. And it's like time to start pushing in that direction, right? So sometimes, you know, on the weekend or on the evenings, I might be thinking about a million years from now and something speculative, but most of the time I'm thinking about literally right now. And occasionally when I get the time, I'm thinking about next year. Um, right. Yeah. I, I think that's incredibly well put. And, you know, one of the funny peculiar things about Bitcoin and these competing narratives, maybe in other systems is, you know, Bitcoin seems so boring at first. It's like, oh, like doesn't doesn't a new sexy Internet sound better than like, mm -hmm. I don't know, another form of money or something outside the hands of the government, whatever, big deal. And I think, you know, part of going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole is and the reason why it's such a gravity. Well, you said it appeals to so many different people like it's this for that person. It's this for that person. It's this for that person is because you begin to realize it, it, I, I may, it, it kind of it's a redefinition or a redefining of money, right? So it was before you're like, oh, it's just money. But now you're like, oh, it's money, mm -hmm. you know, and, and money mm -hmm. is this now. It's so much bigger, you know, and hence the memes that bubble up from that, like Bitcoin fixes this because mm -hmm. why does it have such broad application to everything? Well, what does money mean to human socioeconomic interaction? It's basically the foundation, you know, it's basically the base layer. So when you when you upgrade that system, when you greatly exp expand its capacity and its possibility, well, you've just expanded the capacity and, and, and possibility of humanity. Right. And all the different things that we want to do in coordination with one another. And that becomes super, super exciting. And, you know, and, and in probably both of our opinions, even more exciting than like a new Internet let's just assume for argument's sake that that is what's going on over there and that it's even mm -hmm. possible, right? Yeah, it's, so, just, it's just like one of the things that will happen along the way is we'll get a new internet out of this, which is awesome. And I think for a lot of people, that's very motivational. Like, I'm excited yeah. about that. But we'll get a new energy supply chain out of this just as well, which is also exactly. really important. Um, yeah. So I think Bitcoiners should, um, should be, as we grow more ascendant and, and as Bitcoin becomes more valuable, I think it behooves us to spend time recruiting um, collaborators and and Bitcoiners out of those adjacent communities. Um, like we want, I want fusion scientists to love Bitcoin because I want, you know what I mean? Like, and, and they don't right now. They just don't, they don't know anything about it. They don't care about it. Um, and we need to change that. It, 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 uh, we can't just, we can't ourselves as Bitcoiners go into every field and change it. We have to get those people from those fields to become Bitcoiners and change it themselves. So I think the more that we talk about how, the things that Bitcoin allows are going to change X field or Y sector or Z business model. Um, the more people and the more that we then prove that and actually do the hard work to build lightning and other systems like Sphinx or, or Daniel's work on identity. Um, I think people will start to see that we're right and they'll start to get on board and they won't get distracted with altcoin stuff over here um, because they'll realize that we're actually making progress. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And that's that that's why I appreciate, you know, yours and Parker's and all there's so many great writers, thinkers, speakers, video makers and that kind of stuff in the space. And, I, you know, I've always thought of it not so much as education, but just, you know, you you throw out these ideas and you pass them back and forth and you refine them to a certain degree. 
And at some point they knock on the door of someone who's in a completely different domain that just gets interested, not dissimilar to all of our journeys. I mean, mm -hmm. we weren't, we, we all didn't start in Bitcoin, right? We all came to it somehow yeah. through some tunnel of interest. And ultimately, because again, money is that thing that touches everything. That means that that knock is going to happen out all doors eventually, you know? And so it's, it's interesting to be inside of this, you know, thing and watch it kind of pulsate and grow. And as the surface area gets bigger, it's drawing in people from more disparate domains. And, you know, people, mm -hmm. as you say, like the, the, the nuclear physicist and the OG oil and gas people and the, you know, whatever, from whatever domain, it starts to become increasingly relevant until that little splinter in their mind they can't ignore anymore. And then they fall over the event horizon just like the rest of us. And mm -hmm. you, you, we know what happens after that. Um, I, I, I know this is going to break up the conversation a little bit, and I do want to discuss some of the things you mentioned about Unchained, but I want to go back just for one second, because I think it's an interesting point you mentioned about why you initially became interested in Bitcoin because of this issue and this problem around time and distributed databases. And I, I don't think that's something that a ton of people appreciate in terms of the innovation that Bitcoin represents. And I, mm -hmm. you know, you're probably one of the best people to maybe speak to that. So, you know. The floor is yours. <laughs> uh, I think maybe uh, one way to, to kind of zone in on that idea is people often say things like miners validate transactions or miners validate blocks and so on. And I just, to me, that's the core uh, of the misunderstanding around what is the role of miners and, in fact, what is the purpose of the blockchain, right? Is that miners, they do validate things, but everyone validates things. Everyone validates every aspect of Bitcoin. Like, you, uh, an important question to ask is, you know, to, to probe the, the, the understanding for your audience members is like, do you think a, a miner, if they had 51% of, of the hash rate, could they spend your UTXOs? And, and the answer is no, they cannot because they don't have your private keys. And so no matter how much hash rate they have, they can't spend your UTXOs. That's a different, that's, a, that's cordoned off from them. What they can do is they can manipulate with their giant amount of hash rate the order in which blocks will appear. And that gives them an ability to manipulate finances and do certain things because, you know, let's say they, they, your transaction is there. Like there's a bunch of, you know, you can Google that. You can see why that's a problem. Um, but it comes back to the idea that miners aren't validating things because everyone's validating things. And that's what protects users from miners. Um, the service that miners provide, the actual thing that they do is they order blocks in a sequence. They solve the double spend problem for everybody by creating an order. And in order to create that order, they have to expend energy to do it. That's what prevents them from cheating. And it's also what provides security for the blockchain. And then as a result, we pay them in Bitcoin. And it's a marvelously circular engine of progress. And I think for a lot of Bitcoiners, the first time you understand how self-referential and circular Bitcoin is, um, it's like a moment of great understanding because you sort of realize how it can synthesize this whole universe inside of itself because it's it sort of just only depends on things with, within Bitcoin and then, I guess, human nature and the, um, the difficulty of proof of work. It's like a few core ingredients that make Bitcoin succeed. But for me, it is it is... Is realizing that miners don't like. Yes, they do validate transactions, but that's not why they get paid. They get paid to order transactions into blocks, because ordering is the hard part of all distributed systems, and it's what previously centralized coordinators, like the people that run like a sysadmin's giant distributed database, they set the time on all the nodes. All the nodes know to ask that system administrator or the resources or the systems that they've set up um, in order to figure out disputes on which thing happened first. Um, and then fundamentally, uh, that is 
if you if you go all the way back to the white paper, Satoshi talks about how like the, the core problem with building distributed transaction systems is this idea of canceling or taking back transactions. If you just don't let that happen anymore, if you just let everything be accumulative, like again that idea of the write ahead log or an append only log. Um, if you use those kinds of structures, then the only problem you need to solve is ordering. You don't need to solve the delete problem. And you can solve the ordering problem, it turns out, with this incredibly smart proof-of-work thing that takes advantage of um, the laws of physics, thermodynamics, and human nature. Um, it's a brilliant solution. Um, and that's really the core thing that, that, that a blockchain does. I sometimes provide the analogy that, like, we often hear, in, especially in Ethland, this idea of a world computer. Like, we're trying to build a world computer here, which... Yeah, is a phrase that I have a lot of issues with. I think it's awesome, like on some level, but like on another level, like the world already is a computer. Everything is a computer already. So um, it's more that we want to change the computing of the world rather than build a new world computer. Because also the idea of having a giant computer with all the world's stuff in it sounds terrible. I don't want my stuff in the same computer as your stuff. Um, in the world computer, if there were such a world computer that Bitcoin is going to build, and I think ultimately all the ambitions of the world computer people are going to be realized on top of Bitcoin and across these various layers. Um, but we can take that analogy a bit further. Like an actual computer is a sequence of layers, right? There's a lot of things happening like right now as we are using our computer that ultimately at the bottommost layer are electrons moving around or more abstractly are zeros and ones or even more abstractly are arithmetic. Like this entire thing is just arithmetic behind the scenes. And so how does that arithmetic layer turn into a real like, human experience that we're having right now that's through a lot of history and layers and software? Um, that's what we're going to build. Right, um, but in the world computer that Bitcoiners are going to build, this giant thing of layers, like the blockchain, it's it's not like the it's not really the computer is the blockchain, and the blockchain is not really even the CPU. Like the blockchain is the CPU clock. All it does is just tick. That's the only thing the blockchain does in this giant world computer is it ticks, and maybe it stores like a backup reel. And everything else that we're computing in this giant world computer is like on a higher layer. It's probably ephemeral compared to the blockchain. It works differently, has different contracts and 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 patterns and structures, and it settles down into this thing. And that 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 miners, all they're doing is they're powering that CPU clock. They're a little quartz crystal in there, ticking away, keeping the ten minute cadence, so the entire system can um, avoid. Uh, conflict and remaining consensus. Um, I think it's underappreciated how difficult telling time is um, in the modern world or synchronizing time. Um, I think even coming back to his history, the idea that everyone in the world knew roughly what time it is to within a second of each other is like, that just, there was no need for that. And so there was no mechanism for it. And it was impossible. And as the world became smaller and more centralized and more connected, like that became commonplace. Um, and it's, fascinating to just the way that, that just as much as Bitcoin deconstructs money and helps you think about like, well, how does money actually work? I think for me, maybe my physics background and whatnot, it helps me deconstruct, well, how does time, how are time and energy really even related? And it turns out like they're deeply fucking related, at least in physics and in Bitcoin as well. Like Bitcoin uses energy to advance forward the march of time. Um, and if you're a physicist, like that is something that should be very familiar to you, which is exciting for me and, and a line that I often used to try to win nuclear physicists to our cause. <laughs> yeah. And shout out to uh, to my colleague uh, and I believe your friend, uh, Gigi, because he's written some great stuff about this and mm -hmm. has helped people under, understand this better. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, you know, do you think, again, the implications are difficult to uh, to discern, but you mentioned like this, this makes the system uh, self-referential in a way that, you know, allows it to function in many ways. 
But time is such an important thing for even outside that system, right? For us. And as you say, you know, specificity of time is sometimes very important. But what we see in this in the Bitcoin space is this funny trend. And you even mentioned that you recently had uh, your anniversary for uh, Unchained. And you mentioned that the block that you the block mm -hmm. you started at. And a lot mm -hmm. of people have started kind of keeping time in, in block time. And there's the block clock and all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, again, we may be opening a can of worms here, but I think it, it, it's interesting speculation in your writing. Basically, the block time is the determinant of how big of an economy can be built on a particular blockchain or and its token. Right. Because the center of hash hypothesis, which mm -hmm. says basically like the block time is, is your constraint to who can participate in in that market, particularly if they want to be mining and derive the benefit from doing so. And That's so in right. that context the block time becomes like civilizationally relevant, right? And in, in, in part three, you, you blow that way out into the universe and say, okay, well, how would we have a monetary network that would be applicable across such vast expanses of space and time? And one of the answers that you propose is like, well, it would have to have a very long block time to, encap to encompass all of that space. And I, I only bring that up to say that if that were the case, then that block time, which maybe prior our understanding was like, oh, it was important in this self-referential system, but not outside of it. Well, how important does that time become outside of it? You know, and so that's why I use the example of Bitcoiners, you know, kind of telling time and keeping track of time in terms of blocks. I wonder how much that time will leak out into the broader world that's not within necessarily the network parameters. You know what I mean? It, it, it is a, um, I think it's a cool trend. It's a, it's a cool way to signal how much Bitcoiner you are. So that's, I, don't mind, I don't mind doing it. Um, but yeah, I think there is something deep about that Satoshi picked 10 minutes. Like, how did Satoshi know that 10 minutes was a good choice? Um, it's never been changed. I'm sure there's been people who have made truck about trying to change it, but I mean, there are fundamental trade-offs, and I think Satoshi must have understood most of these, if not all of them. Like, Satoshi definitely understood that if you make the block time shorter, it makes blocks come faster, which is good for settlement, but it makes more forks, which is bad for consensus. Um, and if you make blocks further apart, it makes consensus easier because you get fewer forks, but it makes the chain harder to use. you got to wait longer for confirmations. So somehow 10 minutes is a good balance between those things, like, I guess. <clears throat> now, I don't know how much Satoshi would have thought about this, but it, to your the point that you're making is that when you choose that block time, you've also then chosen a spatial scale. But not only have you picked a cadence for how, how the network um, evolves in time and, and, and processes change sets every 10 minutes approximately, you've also said that mining won't be possible except for within about a light minute or two of the center of hash of that blockchain, which is, again, totally esoteric concern because um, there's nothing like within a light minute of here that ate on the surface of the earth basically right now in human history, but is an interesting point of speculation. And I don't know how much Satoshi thought about that, but it's nonetheless true that having picked the 10-minute time scale, they also sort of set the spatial scale of how big Bitcoin can ever grow to be. To your point, that also sort of implicitly sets an energy scale. Um, which overall in the grandest of you know human history kind of sets a civilizational size scale, right? Like on the Kardashev scale, sort of sets it. The Bitcoin is kind of for here. It's for type one civilizations that you know are planetary. Um, and then I try to argue that um, you could do something bigger. You could try to say, well, I want a blockchain that's 30 or block time that's 30 days long. So I can have a 
a, uh, a in this world, I, you know, settlement would take months or, 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 or maybe a year or something like that. And it's, and it's sort of, it, it, it changes the nature of what it is you buy and how you buy that thing. Um, and for us, it's, it's maybe crazy on the surface of earth today when people live for 70 years on average or whatever to think about a system that's so slow, but in the far future, if humans are living for tens of thousands of years, if we're routinely taking six month space voyages to cross the solar system, it's a it's a different pace of life. It's a different market um, and a different set of concerns. I even see that happening today, like even with Bitcoin and Lightning. That like you know, you talk about part of the reason to purchase um, Lightning streaming podcasts or whatever is because you want to support the Lightning network. And I think mostly that's true today. Um, you know, we don't have to use that system to listen to a podcast, but I think we're very close to an era in which the only way to buy a certain thing is through the Lightning Network. It's the only way you can purchase it um, because it's the only place that it's sold or it's the only um, thing that the purveyor will accept. And that starts to become a really compelling reason to use the Lightning Network is that I can't buy this good except for on the Lightning Network. And what, what would that good likely to be when it first started out? It's likely to be something um, maybe illegal maybe piracy, maybe speech that is forbidden in other places. It's likely to be something that has an element of ugliness to it for a lot of people, but over time it'll grow into um, just a natural place where, of course, I buy all my software off a Lightning Network. The The bigger point is that there are, there are things that will only be sold within the Lightning Network, and that'll be an important reason to spend those sats. I think coming back to what you were talking about as if it's really true that in the grandest story of time we build blockchains at bigger and bigger layers, it's because there are things at those bigger layers that you will only buy at that bigger layer. Um, right. And the market will segment out in, in time preference, essentially, um, which is kind of what's happening even here with Lightning, right? Like, I think... Um, the way that Lightning has balanced itself, you don't want to use Lightning to send a thousand Bitcoin. That's you want to do that on layer one and have it take a certain amount of time for certain kinds of transactions, and you want to use layer two for other kinds of transactions for other things. And there's obviously going to be some kind of nebulous overlap region, but they're designed for different markets for different use cases. Even though it's all just Bitcoin, so I think that. Um, that's a trend I see happening across blockchains, even in the future. If you really want to go, you know, speculative here. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I love to speculate on that stuff. And you know, I guess one of the like, as we are understanding our relationship with money more as a result of this Bitcoin experiment that we're all a part of, it seems like it might also begin to to change our relationship to time. I guess is the oh, point. Yeah. And and yeah. it'll be really interesting to see that is like what will. Like, how will we perceive the different relevance of different times, right? And again, right now it's quirky that Bitcoiners use block time, right? But in the future, I mean, when might you use the, the greater specificity of like a chronological time? Or when may you default to a different form of time? Like, for example, if you're a hardcore Bitcoiner, maybe you set your alarm to a certain block height every morning. And if there's a deviation of 10, 15, 20 minutes, and so mm -hmm. be it. You, you want to align your own time with Bitcoin time because you perceive that system of time so much more relevant to you than a more arbitrary, you know, non-consensus, let's say, chronological time. I mean, it's kind of weird uh, to think about how we might, we may time things in a different uh, scale of time or, or keep track of things in a different time. Like I, I like that, um, and, and part of it is just because I, I tend to feel um, that, like the time pressure that we all feel as part of modern society is like not a normal thing for human beings. Like we've never historically in our evolution ever 
been in, a, in it's rare to be in situations where being five minutes late for something is a big problem, right? Like having to make a giant journey and then arriving there five minutes late can be a huge you failed at that point. Um, as a person who's often tardy, maybe this is just a personal bias, but um, I like and relish a world in which it's just people don't do that. That there is, and it's not because it's impossible to do. Obviously, hopefully, we'll still have technology and fucking watches and stuff that tell normal time, but it's just not important to be that way um, for whatever reasons that that society has developed. Um, maybe that's not true. I'm sure timeliness is always going to be important in certain places and times. And you're always going to have to do certain things, but I love your idea of. Well, I'm late. You know, we all showed up later today because today's block came a bit later, and and blah blah blah. It, it's a it's a wonderful way to think about apportioning time. Um, feels like vacation attitude or something like that. Uh, yeah. You know, like yeah. I, well, I would have got here, but the ferry didn't show up. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like honestly, I can see it taking hold. I can see it being one of those weird things that just you know, the unexpected things that people shift to a, you know, a Bitcoin uh, block height time for certain things, right? If you're counting down the space shuttle, maybe not, but if uh, uh, right. know, for, for other, for other things in your life, possibly. Um, Drew, what, you know, back to, back to Unchained, because we, again, we can talk about this. Here, here's something stuff. I'll toss out just as an, as a, uh, sure. a speculation is I think a concrete reason you might argue to use block times is for unpredictability. That you might say, it's important to me that we do this thing roughly at this time, but it would be bad if it could be predicted in advance exactly when it happens. Sorry, I'm just getting some power going here. I don't know. Um, but perhaps uh, I'm launching an update and or a piece of software on some network or something. And um, in general, I don't want attackers to know when it will happen, but um, in advance too much. I want, or I don't want them to, I, I, I'm sort of brainstorming here on, on other than laziness, um, <laughs> what are some reasons why people might like the Keep idea of a time? Yeah. Like of a time that has a certain amount of randomness to it. Um, could be. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, like again, before, before we move on, I, I just got to ask this question too. You know, we're, we're talking about the kind of how Satoshi might have, uh, came up with these seemingly arbitrary parameters and how much, Mm -hmm. he would have rolled the clock forward to see how they might have influenced things in whatever way or another. You know, in, in your Bitcoin astronomy series, you, you know, uh, speculate that, you know, Earth might be able to participate in uh, Xenocoin or, you know, a coin that's uh, <laughs> uh, solar system wide or even galaxy wide. Should they be able to, you know, uh, harness enough energy to participate? And because of the block time, They'd be able to do so in a way that makes sense and is valid and they can even benefit from. But it's interesting because in, in that scenario as well, not only will we have had to develop our energy harnessing uh, tech, but we'd also have to uh, develop our data storage tech, right? Because if we're going to keep a copy of the ledger and, the, and every block is, you know, several hundred years uh, long, that's a lot of data, right? So I, I, I guess I never thought about it that way. Maybe it wouldn't be. I mean, I think fundamentally something powerful about Bitcoin is that its blocks have a relatively small amount of data. Considering, like, it, let's this is controversial. Once I don't know if it's still controversial, <laughs> but like, if in thirty years we have the entire world using Bitcoin and it still has you know one megabyte B size limits on blocks, it's a relatively small data size for 
the economic volume that it's processing, but many people because believe of that's scaling the point. tech, right? Because of <clears throat> yeah, scaling many, many people believe yeah. that. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah. Like we we don't want every economic transaction in the blockchain. Um, that's actually an anti-pattern. We want the most important ones in the blockchain somehow, and that's the way that we are approaching that scaling exercise. So maybe there's a similar thing going on here that. Even if you want to project as crazy speculative, big and forward as you want, and you're saying these blocks come every thousand years, it doesn't necessarily mean they're like, I don't know, exabytes in size or something. Maybe they're yeah, still relatively small. I guess not necessarily. It would be, yeah. It would, it would be the be most important transactions across the galaxy, I suppose, right? Mm -hmm, and and mm -hmm. buying a, a, you know, a minor freighter over here on some world isn't going to qualify or something like right, that, right? Like right. it's going to be like the big solar system to solar system transactions that make it into, the, into such a chain. Yeah. All right. I, I, I'm aware of time and I do want to talk about Unchained for a little while. So let's, let's hit that now. Uh, first of all, <laughs> I, I, I love the platform. What, what you guys have built for key storage, <clears throat> collaborative custody, uh, as you say, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's not going to appeal maybe to super hardcores that are crazy privacy driven, but I think there's a massive market of people that want to own Bitcoin, mm -hmm. are somewhat apprehensive about how best to do that. And the vault platform that you guys have, have built, I think, is, you know, perfect for that demographic or, or, or cohort or market. Um, so kudos on that. And then also what we were referring to earlier about how I love your uh, approach to building solutions that are let's say like fault tolerant in some way. So Caravan is an open source way that you can access these vaults. So if Unchained should go away, you can still, uh, you know, your, your, your access to your funds is not disrupted. You know, and I, I think that's mm -hmm. an awesome thing. You mentioned Lightning, this development process, what I just mentioned in terms of development. How do you guys go about determining, you know, like the product, what you need to build along with the product to make sure that, you know, you're not a single point of failure and just you know what's the development process been like as you've built these these tools and and published them out to the world well i would say like the number um the way i think about it sometimes in my head is that constraints can be really powerful accelerators of product roadmaps and of company success um sometimes too much freedom um leads to bad choices um an argument i would make is that when you're starting a Bitcoin financial services company in 2016 or 2017, um, for a lot of people, the last thing you should do is invest in a bunch of multi-sig technology and custodial stuff and write a bunch of code. Like, Just get a Coinbase account and start finding customers and start making money. Um, that, I, I believe that's a short-term <clears throat> uh, model that, like, sure, you might lead to a lot of success. You might big a build a big book of business, but eventually over time, everyone else will also replicate what you did because it, it, there's no moat that you've built around yourself. Perhaps there is a certain moat in terms of trading partners or whatnot, but you have no technology and you're not getting better at Bitcoin. Um, for us, uh, we decided early, yeah, we, <laughs> we decided early on that it was important to us to, that security was important to us. Um, that led us to Essentially, we don't store Bitcoin outside of multi-sig, period. Like, everything is in multi-sig from day one before multi-sig was easy. And it was initially something we did internally um, <clears throat> for ourselves. Like We would just have multi-sig within the company. And then it became something we do collaboratively. And that was a big transition and important for us. But having said that, this is ultimately like a constraint that we live under, that collaborative custody is how Unchained delivers financial services. And moreover, it's become our belief that is the right way to deliver financial services. So what this constraint is doing to us is it is programming the way we think about product development, like period. Um, an analogy I might provide is um, like Google versus Yahoo, when they were both trying to solve the search problem. 
um, the rise of the internet. And Yahoo took a very traditional approach of just collect all the world's facts into some database over here and have humans curate it and expose the database. And Google said, mm, let's build a horizontally scalable machine learning algorithm. And that's how we're going to index the internet. We're not going to curate it. We're going to index it. Um, and it turned out that like that was the core constraint that made Google successful, is that they forced themselves to build every product as a horizontally scalable machine learning product. Um, everything at Google is deployed in that same way. It's scalable. It runs across a huge number of machines. It's just the way they think about building things. And so as a result, um, they are by far the best distributed systems engineers in the world. They, a lot of the th things that I was building at InfoChimps are open source clones of things that Google built five to 10 years prior. Hadoop is a clone of Google Sawzall in some way that was implemented by an ex-Googler in Java in an open source way. So um, a huge part of Google's success as a platform and as a, like a worldwide successful tech company is accepting this constraint early on and just saying, this is how Google builds things. And it made them the best in the world at building things that way. And they invented so many patterns that everyone else started to use afterwards. Um, and that's what I think Unchained is doing, is we have accepted this constraint that we only build things with collaborative custody, and therefore we don't have a give us your Bitcoin and, and, we'll, give, and we'll lend it out and we'll on paper book you some return, but we don't actually know where your Bitcoin is product. We just don't have that product because we, we can't deliver that product in collaborative custody. There's a demand for that product, but we don't sell it. We will start to sell a product like that when we have trading partners who can consume that product via collaborative custody. And I think it's going to become very powerful when that product eventually hits market. Um, but until then, we're not going to worry about it. And so these constraints, they hold us back. They make our work more difficult. It means we move slower than competitors when we're out to bring products to market. But I think those products are superior. The, the, the security is superior. The um, feeling that you have as a Bitcoiner using like these systems is superior to just giving your coin away and, and you fucking know it. And our team is learning like better and faster than any other team in the ecosystem how to do collaborative custody right. Like like the things that we're doing with our individual uh, um Single per like single customers and small family offices and smaller businesses. These are the things that I fully expect MicroStrategy and Square and <clears throat> Goldman Sachs and Nidig, all of these giant firms are going to use the things that we do, because the way that they currently do business is not sustainable. It, you cannot just allow funds to accumulate at the world's largest custodian and then everybody just pretends that that's how they. It's not going to happen. There's going to be hacks. There's going to be um, an evolution in the business world towards collaborative custody and towards replicating the structures that Unchained has already built. So the way that I think about our history is by accepting the constraint early on, by reifying it, by making it the way that we do product development and engineering here, we are the world's best at it. And everyone else is a little bit behind us, and they're going to be consuming the open source stuff that we leave in our wake, and that's okay. Um, we're very we're we're confident enough now, especially that we've achieved product market fit with the core um, products that we've already brought to market. We're confident that we're going to stay ahead of that curve, and we kind of want people to come in here. That's why we give all this stuff away. Like we want other people to build products the way that we build them. Um, we're not threatened by that. We embrace that, um, and I think that's what Google did. That was also smart. Is they taught everybody else how to do what they do, because crucially, it just created more data for them to index. And I think we feel the same way. The more people that we bring into the capability of being able to do collaborative custody, the more customers and partners we have to collaborate with, the larger our financial networks grow and the more successful we become. Yeah. 
Makes perfect sense. What was the hardest part about taking this approach and figuring out how to navigate these waters initially or throughout the, the course of the development? Being irrelevant, feeling like no one gave a shit, like feeling that like, why are we so obsessed with security when it seems like, you know, we're between a rock and a hard place. There's there's either people who care so much about security like us that they'll never trust us. They'll always want to do it on their own. And then everyone else just doesn't care about security and they're never going to use us. So who's left in the middle? And it was a uh, it was a question investors would ask us, like, you know, I don't get why you guys are doing this. Why don't you just sell that uh, lend out people's Bitcoin product like BlockFi does? Like, they're making mm -hmm. so much money on that. You should surely do that. Well, man, it's not just security. It's also regulations. I mean, look, look at some of the complexity that BlockFi and similar um, companies are dealing with now as, as, as regulators get into that mix and sort of realize, like, wait a minute, what you're doing is um, selling securities in an unregistered way. Um, so it's I'm happy that we made that. I'm happy that we invested early when it didn't feel like it was the right choice in the market because it was contrary, and we've often been contrary in that way. Um, it's turned out to be a smart choice. It's paid off for us. It's it, we have, I think, the best in class collaborative custody product in the market, and people are discovering that and starting to use it. And once you're in it, like it's a ratchet. You're not going back to Coinbase. You're not going back to a single sig treasure after using collaborative custody. It's just never going to happen. Um, mm -hmm. It's a it's fantastically superior. And so in that sense, we have, even though it was a risk to get here, um, and you know, especially in Bitcoin winter, um, it's just, it's hard to get through a winter for any, but for any Bitcoin company, it's even harder if you haven't yet had like a really strong product market fit to kind of fill your coffers and get you set. Um, so it was really challenging to get here, but I'm glad that we took the risk because um, I'm proud of what we've built. And I feel like we have stickiness now and we have longevity in this market. And now our mission is to build more and more, more financial services delivered through collaborative custody to, to make the value of being in our network even greater. Right. Now, the, the recent funding probably answers this question, but am I right in assuming the last six to 12 months have, you know, you guys have really hit a stride uh, and also pursuant to that question, I think I noticed in one of the press releases, I don't know if it was the initial seed funding of the Series A, but it stated there that you were custodying about a billion dollars uh, worth of Bitcoin for customers. Is, is the current amount a public figure? And if so... Can you share it? <laughs> and if not, no, no I can't. I can't share it publicly, but let's just say it's it's far greater than where we were at a billion dollars a long time ago. Right. Um, I think right. part of that is just driven by Bitcoin's growth, but honestly, Bitcoin's growth has been kind of erratic this last six to eight months, like since mm -hmm. February, March of this year. So most of the growth has just been constant acquisition of new clients, customers, and Bitcoin. We're bringing a lot of Bitcoin in from other platforms. People leaving, you know, our competitors, places like Coinbase and other, and I, that just makes me so happy. Um, because I don't, I don't like people keeping their coin in, in centralized custodians. I much yeah. prefer them getting into collaborative custody. Um, so a, a lot of this has just been, uh, tremendous growth fueled by, you know, new acquisitions, like again, just, just product market fit, being able to be a little bit louder. We have more money. We can advertise a bit more. We can market better. Parker's been on a great run of podcasts recently. That always helps. Um, <clears throat> more for, I think it's just, it's just time has come, you know, I think part of the reason that, we're experiencing such a wave of adoption now is that perhaps it's true that three to four years ago when we were starting to build this stuff out, Bitcoin was just worth, you know, 10 to 15, 28 times less. Um, and therefore, the market of people who felt that they had enough Bitcoin where they really had to invest in high security multi-sig for it was just 10 to 15, 20 times smaller. 
And now that Bitcoin's worth so much more, so many more people are Bitcoin millionaires. So many more people are Bitcoin hundred thousandaires or whatever the number is that makes them feel like they can't just leave that stuff on Coinbase anymore. They can't just leave it on a single mm-hmm. treasure sitting in a drawer in their studio. Um, so that and that is a that's a trend you can depend upon, right? If Bitcoin is going to succeed, there's that cohort of individuals who care about security to want to invest in multi-stake. It's just always going to get bigger, and it's always going to start. Um, it's going to start to include companies and stuff, as I said previously. So it's we're in a good position. <clears throat> we're sort of the endpoint of a lot of people's custodial journey. Like they'll start with <clears throat> a third-party custodian, they'll move to single sig, and then they'll realize that they need unchained and multi-sig and so on. And beyond uh, that, there's nothing beyond us. That's our that's our mission is to make sure that we are the final endpoint for your coin. Because one, you're still in control. You can always leave. If you don't like us, we screw up. We do something you don't like, you can walk out the door and we can't stop you. We even gave you the tools to do it for free in an open source way. Um, but once you're here, you are, our hope is that you never will leave because everything that you're ever going to want to consume as a financial service, we're building and we're building it in the most principled way that, that considers your sovereignty and your transparency and your privacy first and foremost. Um, we, don't, we don't believe there's a better partner long term for Bitcoin holders than us for financial services yeah. and custody. Well said. Um, <clears throat> two more, Drew, and then I'll let you go. But the the two questions about the collaborative custody and the and the the, the lending, right? So, basically, in in the collaborative custody approach, where a third party is involved, you have the customer, you have Unchain, and you have a third party, each of whom has a key. Therefore, if you lose all yours, then Unchain and this third party can come together to help you recover your funds. Uh, and then, in the case of lending, a similar approach in terms of. Uh, Key sharing is deployed, as far as I understand, but you access liquidity from this third party. Can you just explain the, you know, the, the dynamics around that, how that third party is chosen mm-hmm. and how they access liquidity in the case of, of the, the lending product? Yeah, so just to be clear, we have um, a, a, the, the core of our service is collaborative custody, which is the idea that Bitcoin should be secured in multi-sig with some arrangement, M of N of keys. Um, the, for each product that we sell, we pick a particular flavor of collaborative custody and particular quorum and particular assignation of key holders that supports that product. So I'll actually start with the vaulting product. The vault product is a two out of three multi-sig, and the client typically has two keys. Mm-hmm. And Unchained has a third key. So there's really only two parties in that product. And most of the time, like, there is a, another class of vault product, <clears throat> which works the way that you described, where there's three parties. And the vault owner only has one key, Unchained has a second, and the third party has the third. And that's designed for folks that, for either regulatory reasons or other reasons, they don't want to have sovereignty over the funds that they hold. Typically, you know, hedge funds, other sort of financial institutions are in a position like that. Most of our customers who are just put, who are holding their Bitcoin with us, like their Bitcoin, they're not choosing that system. They're choosing the more um, self-sovereign system where they have two out of the three keys that they operate. So in this model, um, Unchained really isn't a custodian at all. We're a partner, we're a backup provider. If you lose a key or if you're traveling, for example, you only have one of your two keys with you, we can, we can countersign with you. So in that sense, that's our most popular product. Um, and I think it's the product that most people start with because it's, um, it's just it's just superior security and we don't charge any kind of percentage basis or anything like that. Um, it's really not our business model to charge people for good security. We just want, we just want people to have good security. Um, and if they don't, and frankly, if they don't want to get it from Unchained, like we salute their attempt to get it from any competitor or we want, or their attempt to do it open source. That's another reason we release software like Caravan is because we want really simple tools that anybody can use to get to multi-sig and collaborative custody if they want. Um, 
the more Bitcoin that we save over the coming decades, the more customers Unchained can have in the future. So it's it's um, if you don't want to use Unchained for your custody, that's fine. Um, just please use multisig. Um, but with that said, uh, the lending product <clears throat> is a little bit different, right? The lending product is uh, one of the ways that we actually make revenue. As once you're in this nice custodial environment, you have your multi-sig, you feel very secure. If you do need to borrow, why should you take your Bitcoin and send them to you know, another custodian and borrow over there? No, you want to leave them in this system. You want to have a multi-institutional custody model where you have still have at least one of the keys into your, into your Bitcoin. So that's what we do. If you, let's say you're in a vault, you have two out of the three keys, you can apply for a loan. If the loan gets approved, you're happy with the terms. You'll transfer some Bitcoin into the loan's wallet, and you're only going to have one out of the three keys. Unchained will have a second, and then there's a third party um, that has a third. Um, and it's interesting. The third party in this model works slightly differently than the third party if you were to use this similar model for a vault. That's because obviously a vault and a loan are very different financial products. right? With a vault, fundamentally, it's your Bitcoin. And in a loan, fundamentally, it's collateral. Right, so you we we have a lien on it in some in a meaningful sense, in a very traditional financial sense, and so the way we would uh, the way we set up the exact same custodial structure of three parties is differs across those two products, and that's an important nuanced point. Um, in the vaulting product, it's the the third party acts at the direction of the vault owner, like one hundred percent. Like Unchained cannot talk to them and say, "Hey, I need you to move this money from that vault." We don't have the right to do that. But conversely, in the lending product. They operate um, with more deference to Unchain. So Unchain can say, look, this person um, is in default on their loan. Like, here's the proof. Like, here's the contract. We need to liquidate them, and they're not cooperating. I, ironically, what something we find is that for a majority of the liquidations that we do, they're actually just done in collaboration with our borrowers. Our borrowers understand the product that they're a part of. They, they know that they're in a margin call scenario. Um, sometimes when they're closing a loan, they don't want to pay it all back. They probably... Most of the time, we're working with them to collaboratively liquidate their own Bitcoin because it's what they want. It's the best decision for them at that moment, as much as we all regret having to sell Bitcoin. Um, it's rarer that we have to operate with that third party. But this is really the core of the insight that we have had, right, is that you want to use multi-sig because it's more secure. You want to collaborate with multiple parties because it allows you to create these smart incentives for different financial products. And you have to be, to be careful that the way that you assign keys and ownership of those keys in a particular wallet for a particular product reflects the actual financial structure of that product, whether it's a loan or an inheritance account or a vault or whatever it might be in the future. Um, and I think coming back to the point I was making previously, this is like a very general thing. Like we can use the same core structures to build a lot of different kinds of products, uh, many of which we haven't launched yet. For example, simple escrow products. You know, two parties are doing a deal. They put Bitcoin into escrow. Unchain holds the third key. That's you could do that today with a vault product in a meaningful way, but we it, we haven't built like a, a dedicated product for that use case. Eventually, we will. Right? Mm -hmm. We'll have. Uh, you know, I, I think about third-party bets and, and funny stuff that people I was just have made say, there's using multi-sig, right? Bets. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. So, so stuff like that, stuff like that is, is the small version of what I think is a more meaningful, more useful product financially for a lot of people who are new doing mergers and acquisitions or other kind of strategic work in the Bitcoin space. Um, three, two out of three is where we tend to sit now, but like you'll see us launch, you know, more complicated quorums over time as we build out more complicated products, especially for business users where they can support fielding more than two keys. Um, basically, we feel like we have a very general strategy here, right? As I was saying earlier, we've embraced the constraint. We have to do things via, via collaborative custody. And the question just becomes, okay, well, 
how do we take regulations like what the customer really needs, the security aspects and protocol aspects of multi-sig, and knit them together into a whole product? So we've done that for vaults. We've done that for loans. We'll be doing that for inheritance and other things coming in the future. Yeah, makes total sense. And just the last point about liquidity providers. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. there's a market for using Bitcoin as collateral. You know, is that a mature market? Is it a broad market? You know, kind of how do you determine who to work with in that for that product? I think the the most important things that we're looking for there are scale and an understanding of the risk structure here. Um, good partners for Unchained for U.S. dollar liquidity have been those who understand that you know our biggest risks are ultimately um, like collapse of Bitcoin, like period, like as an as an as an ecosystem or something. That's the biggest existential risk that we've covered almost all the risks around short-term depreciation through the trading partners that we hold, um, the custodial risks of having the collateral be stolen out from underneath us by having the multi-sig custody that's spread across the whole planet. I mean, our keys are literally spread across the planet. It's awesome. Um, these Not every lender can understand this. Um, so that's that's one of our prerequisites. Another one is a, fo- a willingness to focus on and appreciate Bitcoin because of its monetary strengths. Um, many capital providers feel that, like, if you're lending against Bitcoin, you just as well could be lending against all the other stuff that's on, you know, the top 100 crypto list or whatever. And you're missing out if you're not also lending against Ethereum and all these other things. And look at all the money these guys are making doing that stuff over here. And so sometimes lenders can get a bit greedy, and they want it. They and they want to. They want access to those flows as well. And we just don't offer that. So we're not, we're not a good fit for a lender who cares to access those markets. Um, and then finally, rate and scale, right? Something that we, Joe and I were, we learned long ago um, is that uh, distributed kind of platform, peer-to-peer lending things just fundamentally don't scale past certain sizes just because of, I guess, ultimately the Cantonian effect, right? Like the way that the money washes over society. So that as an individual participating in any kind of peer-to-peer lending, lending club or whatever, you know, the stuff that was around in the early 2000s and, and mid-2000s as, the, as projects like that were getting started, it's like you don't want 2% or 3% returns. Like you want 10%, 12%. What, you want the highest return you could possibly get as an individual. Um, and that's where those businesses start is they start at that kind of peer-to-peer level, sourcing capital in that way at a very high rate. But inevitably, as they grow larger, as they get more of a borrower base that can drive demand pull for their services, um, they start to get better offers. They start to go to you know financial firms instead of individuals who are willing to take 10%, then 8%. And they start getting to like much larger firms that are willing to take 6 and then 5 And it starts to get – and that's, that's good because it makes the product cheaper to buy for the borrowers, which increases – borrower demand as well as the size of a market of borrowers who are willing to take a loan at that rate. It also obviously creates more profitability for the loan originator and servicer, the platform in that situation. So like armed with that knowledge, like we did not pursue some kind of peer-to-peer based lending capital strategy, which I think a priori would have felt a little bit more Bitcoin-y, like, hey, let's go get dollars from Bitcoiners to lend to Bitcoiners, it's a whole thing. But we avoided that because we just were aware of the way the capital markets scale more efficiently. And there's so much money out there waiting for returns like the ones that we provide. NIDIG loves funding our loans because they understand that, that it's an amazing product for them as well as for the Bitcoiners that they're supporting. Um, so that's kind of been just the journey is trying to find folks that understand Bitcoin, understand the real risk calculus and, and, and how our product works, want to stay focused on Bitcoin. And ultimately, as we grow, can kind of scale with us to get us even larger um, 
you know, tranches of lending capital to work with at ever lower rates because we, we, you know, we're not there yet, but at some point, like borrowing against your Bitcoin should be one of the cheapest possible ways to borrow. It should be cheaper um, than, let's say, for example, an unsecured loan or a loan against your home or any other kind of collateral. We're not there yet. Um, for many people, because borrowing it's such with collateral is that the that, that's the that, assumption. That's my belief. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Like if you if you if your home is your collateral, it's a thing in the physical universe. It can only be in one place. Selling it will take many many months. There's an appraisal process. There's yeah. human tragedy of kicking people out of homes that no one likes to do, but is part of that process. Um, Bitcoin is just it's digital. It's there's no weather to worry about. Um, it's instant. It's confirmable. Like when, when you're a borrower. In, on the Unchained platform, you know exactly where the Bitcoin is. It's on the blockchain. You have an address. You have redeem scripts. You can verify it for yourself. When you're a lender, it's the same thing. Like you get that proof. You see that stuff. Um, so it's very transparent. Um, that's not true in most forms of lending. So for all these reasons, um, ultimately view like it is the best possible form of collateral. It's part of why we started with our very first product being a Bitcoin collateralized loan. And I want it to therefore be the cheapest form of borrowing. It's not yet. And the reason it's not is because things are still new. There's still a risk premium around Bitcoin, like just in general, around everything touching it. Um, it's scary. Uh, and so it's a little bit more expensive than it should be long term. But we've already seen rates cut literally in half since our business was started. Um, and I expect that trend to accelerate over time as we get bigger and are just able to access uh, larger pools of capital. Right. Um, which is good for borrowers. I want I, don't, I want Bitcoiners to always think about borrowing with Unchained before they think about selling. Sure, and you know, so basically, the the collateral is collaboratively collaboratively held. Uh, the liquidity provider offers fiat at a certain rate. You guys take a cut of that. They take a cut of that. It's offered to the the hodler, and everyone kind of wins, right? The hodler doesn't have to sell. This is kind of like a bridge to hyper-Bitcoinization before you're actually maybe spending Bitcoin for everything in your life, access to fiat. And yeah, as you say, I mean, the, the more mm -hmm. this market grows, <clears throat> I think it's, I, I agree it stands to reason that uh, this collateral just is orders of magnitude better than any other kind. And so once that risk premium comes down and the market broadens, it should be a relatively inexpensive way to access uh, fiat, you know, all things, all things being equal or all things considered, you know, so. I, th I think right now, one of the things that's really got going for us, we are very fast, again, because it's like an incredible form of collateral. Like, we don't have to go through a complex underwriting process or any kind of appraisal process. Like, if you can land Bitcoin in this address, like, that we're collaboratively custodying together, like, that's good. Um, yeah, we, there has to, there's an onboarding process and all that, but we have turned down multiple, we have turned over, excuse me, uh, approved and funded multiple, like million dollar loans, multiple million dollar loans in 24 hours. Um, that's a great, that's a great turnaround. So for a lot of individuals, just the speed at which we can operate um, as a business is attractive. But I want to combine that speed with really low cost eventually to the borrowers. Um, I want to be able to, to really make, um, Borrowing against your Bitcoin, like a normal part of a wealth management strategy for someone with a lot of Bitcoin, just like borrowing against your brokerage portfolio is a normal part of being a wealthy person um, uh, who has like a financial manager or something like that. Yeah. And should we expect international customers to be able to avail of this service anytime in the uh, near future? I don't know. Um, this is a big focus question for us. I think our company is laser focused right now on uh, the United States. Um, we're increasing our regulatory reach across the United States to be able to service more and more customers with more products um, across all 50 states as best we can. Um, it's hard to, you know, 
there's international and then there's international, right? There's like, is Canada international? Well, you know, they mostly speak English and they're mostly in the same time zones as we are. That makes it a lot easier to spread into Canada. Um, it's like Australia, they speak English, but they're in a totally different time zone. That makes it sort of challenging. There's different regulatory environments. Like part of me wishes that we were in Singapore and in China and in uh, Berlin and in all these places where there's a lot of Bitcoiners, but also just recognize how expensive it is to replicate what we're doing across the globe. It may be a more effective strategy to license our technology and our services and our software and our practices. Um, it might be better to partner. Um, I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. It's something that we're we're always debating because we get a lot of demand and we have a lot of customers internationally who use our vaulting products, which are a lot easier for us to support. There's much less overlap with um, local regulations um, in regards to loans and things like that. So that product is much more successful and supported internationally. But um, we've, we've been pretty conservative around spreading more complex financial services internationally. We, uh, we tend to, um, I think other businesses and, and founders and stuff tend to be very like, um, act first, you know, ask, ask for, what is it? Uh, forgiveness is easier than uh, permission or something. Right, I, right. I, I, I get that, but also I'm just like, I don't know, man, I got a lot of risk I'm sitting on. I, I, I we have a lot of clients. We have a lot of Bitcoin that we help protect. We have, a, we have a lot of momentum. The, the last thing I, our company needs is to be embroiled in some silly lawsuit in another jurisdiction because we didn't, because we were, excited about moving quickly there. I'd rather move slowly and be secure and sustainable. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you've got a long way, a lot of potential left in the US anyways, right? A lot of work, a lot of work to be done there. So we're I was still just asking, early, man. No I, I one knows what Bitcoin is. <laughs> yeah. Um, Drew, man, we could talk for hours and I'd, I'd love to continue mm-hmm. this someday, but uh, I am aware of your time and I appreciate how much you've given already. Uh, and I'm sure you're an extremely busy guy. So we'll have to leave it there for today, but any uh, parting words or anywhere you want to direct people before we shut it down? No, this was awesome, man. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed like the wide ranging conversation. We got to talk about a lot of different areas of stuff that I've been thinking about. Um, I also just um, hope that your audience continues to grow. Your, your selection of guests so far on the show has been impeccable and, and super interesting, like not just trying to toot my own horn. Um, I think there is a, uh, a, a lot of education that we as Bitcoiners um, aren't doing effectively around some of the stuff that we're all collectively thinking about and working on, like Lightning and higher layers and our plans for how we... Um, we build all these things and how, why they're going to succeed. And I'm always eager to communicate that um, in any form that I can. So thank you for the chance. And maybe I, I can come back sometime. We can uh, continue to talk about all the little interesting and esoteric nooks and crannies of Bitcoin together. Absolutely, man. We'll, uh, we'll see how people feel about the range of this one. And uh, if they like it, we'll get you back <laughs> on to go further down the rabbit hole and further into space, let's say. So uh, right. Yeah, man. Thanks. And congrats on all the success at Unchained. It's, it's a pleasure to watch. Oh, and you, I can't John. wait to see uh, what happens with you guys in the future. All right. Thank you so much, man. All right, brother. Take care. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Dhruv has such a broad variety and depth of knowledge on so many things, including Bitcoin. Uh, It's just such a treat to have him share his insights and perspectives on things. Hopefully we'll get the chance for a round two in the future where we can dig in a little deeper into some of them. Until then, you can follow Dhruv on Twitter at Dhruv Bansal, D-H-R-U-V-B-A-N-S-A-L, and learn more about Unchained Capital at Unchained.com. 
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.